introduce myself earlier. <laughs> Sorry about that. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and that was Dave uh, up here with me, helping with announcements just a few minutes ago. Apologies about that. Um, we're now entering into week three here in this uh, paradoxology conversation, and, and another apology is just to say that our, our tone this morning is going to shift pretty dramatically here. That, you know, We've been in this season of, of kickoff and starting a, a new chapter and a new season, and all of that is really exciting, and I think there's sort of you know, this enthusiasm for this new time of the year. And, and now today... You know, again, halfway into the gathering, we're going to kind of turn our attention to these big questions of suffering and, and why do bad things happen and all this kind of stuff. So the tone is going to change a little bit, but hang with us because uh, I feel like where we're going with this conversation this morning is going to be uh, hopefully really helpful and free us up in some ways, okay? So as we continue on in this conversation, we've been asking these really big questions, stepping into some of the big uh, tensions in our faith, and I've said this the last couple of weeks, and I'm just going to keep saying it so that it kind of gets down into our bones. But in this conversation, we're not trying to answer every single question. The goal is not to answer all of our questions, but rather the goal here is to create a space that is generous enough and safe enough for us to bring our questions, to give voice to some of our doubts, and to wrestle with these things together. So generous and safe enough to do that, but then also just dangerous enough that we might actually be changed and transformed by what we find, that we might actually be changed by the good news about Jesus. Okay? We want to be a church for people who are in process, not people who think that they are finished products. And so this morning, we turn our attention to the character of Job. And to get into this, I want to begin with a question. And the question is this, when did you know? When did you know this world is really messed up? When did you know this, is, this is, could not be the way that it was supposed to be? Maybe for you, it was something as simple as having your, uh, one of your favorite toys trampled by a sibling when you were a kid. Maybe there was a bully in your school who, for whatever reason, singled you out. Maybe it was the day that your dad didn't come home. When did you know? Tanoasi Coates wrote a brilliant book that came out a couple of years ago called Between the World and Me. And in this book, he's... Uh, the format of the book is him talking to his 15-year-old son. His son is watching the events of Ferguson and some of these other you know, national moments of violence against African Americans and, and coming to this awakening moment in his life of, oh, the deck is stacked against me. And so Tanawasi, as his dad, is, is walking through that with him and he shares his own moment of awakening. And these are his words about what that was like for him. He says, I remember being amazed that death could so easily rise up from the nothing of a boyish afternoon, billow up like a fog. I know that West Baltimore, where I lived, that the north side of Philadelphia, where my cousins lived, that the south side of Chicago, where my father lived, comprised a world apart. Somewhere out there, beyond the firmament, past the asteroid belt, there were other worlds where children did not regularly fear for their bodies. 
I knew this because there was a large television resting in my living room, and in the evenings, I would sit before this television bearing witness to the dispatches from this other world. There were little boys with complete collections of football cards, and their only want was a popular girlfriend, and their only worry was poison oak. And then he says, and I felt in this a cosmic injustice, a profound cruelty, which infused an abiding, irrepressible desire to unshackle my body and achieve the velocity of escape. Now, these are sacred words. And me, as a white male living in America, I have a, you know, I can only scratch the surface of comprehending what he's talking about here. Some of us certainly feel the weight of the cosmic injustice of the world differently than others. And yet, and yet we all feel this. When did you know that cosmic injustice, that profound cruelty, that desire to escape, Romans 8 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, that moment when all of our suffering will be fully removed. Do you know this groan? When did you know? Again, today we're considering the Job paradox. Job is this character in Scripture, this man who lost everything, suffered a profound injustice, and his story raises some of the deepest questions of our human experience. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And why doesn't God intervene to stop it? God is good. Shouldn't he do something? Shouldn't he do more about the suffering, the injustice that we see in our world? The Job paradox causes us to wrestle with the God who is actively inactive. What do we do when God doesn't show up in the midst of our suffering? If you have a Bible, open to Job chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will come around and make sure you have a Bible. The book of Job, it falls right in the middle of Scripture. So if you're not quite sure where it is, if you're not familiar with Job, just sort of open your Bible to the middle and and flip around a little bit. You'll find it fairly easily. It's one of the longest books in Scripture, and it comes right before the Psalms. And it's placed there because Job is considered to be part of the wisdom literature tradition in Scripture, alongside books like Psalms and the Proverbs. This is important to note. The genre is really important for us to take note of because the writing style here is philosophical. It is literary. This is not history in the same way that Genesis and Exodus are history. Those are the two books that we spent significant time in the last two Sundays. So we're shifting genres. And and many people consider the book of Job, both inside and outside the church, considered to be one of the most profound philosophical reflections on suffering that we have as, as human beings. Many scholars believe that the story of Job predates Abraham, and in fact, uh, uh, many have argued that it was probably the first book of the Bible that was written down. 
So chronologically, they locate it after Genesis 11. If your Bible were laid out in chronological order, it would go Genesis 1 through 11 and then Job, and then it would pick back up again in Genesis chapter 12. Now remember, a couple of Sundays ago, we talked about Abraham, and we looked at how Genesis 1 through 11 forms this sort of prologue to not just the book of Genesis, but all of Scripture. It's kind of like the first 20 minutes of the Lord of the Rings, right? This sort of deep history, this context-setting scene. In there, we see God's good creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We see human beings rebel against this creation, Genesis 3. Sin enters into the story. And then chapters 4 through 11 unpack for us the fallout of this rebellion against God's good order. We see a breakdown of relationships between individuals, within families. We see violence between groups of people. We see this repeated pattern of death and depravity. And the question that hangs when you get to the end of that section, at the end of Genesis 11, the questions that hang are, what is God going to do about this? Is there a remedy to this? Will there be a solution to sin and death and violence and destruction? All the ways that we wreak havoc on each other and on creation. And then also, was creation itself a waste of time? Is humanity worth saving? We saw, again, when we looked at Abraham, we saw that God does answer this question beginning with Abraham and ultimately in Jesus. But again, between the questions of Genesis 11 and the Abraham story sits Job. This long, long reflection on suffering and injustice. And the setup for the Job story, if you're not familiar with it, is quite bizarre. So let's, let's get into this. Job chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So Job, high praise there for Job, right, is a good man. And one day, God points this out to Satan, this kind of bizarre conversation that God has with Satan. Skip down to verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And all of you are going back and forth. Have you seen this guy? This guy is not like other human beings. There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, here, we need to get out of our minds the, the, these sorts of images that we have of, of Satan as this guy in a red suit who strokes his beard and has a pitchfork. The word used for Satan here is best translated as accuser, and this name accuser is important because it connects this character with the snake going all the way back to Genesis 3, right? The snake who tempts Adam and Eve to the Antichrist character that's talked about in the New Testament. And we don't have time this morning to get into a full theology of the accuser in Scripture. But what the biblical authors want us to know 
is that there is a force of evil in the universe. There is a personality of evil in the universe who works counter to everything that God is for. And in this particular story, just like in Genesis 3, the accuser challenges, undermines God's posture towards humanity. Look at what he says next, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. So here is the bargain that struck between God and Satan. God will let Job suffer to see what he'll do if he'll renounce his allegiance. You might be thinking, what? Why would God let this happen? This is, this is crazy. This is bizarre. And that's actually the appropriate response to have to the way that this story begins. The, the book of Job wants us to feel that tension. So Satan gets to work. Job loses everything, all of his property, and even his family. And yet after that, Job gets up, tears his robe, shaves his head, falls to the ground, and worships Saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is an incredible, almost unbelievable response. Satan comes back and says, well, the reason Job didn't curse you to your face, didn't renounce his allegiance, is because you, you didn't let me do anything to him directly. I took away all of his stuff, but let me strike him physically, and then watch, he'll, he'll change his mind. And so God lets him do it again. And Job gets these terrible boils on his skin, and yet still, Job doesn't budge. Chapter 2, his wife says to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Just get it over with. And Job replies, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And again, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, what happens next is really the point of the, of the book. This is just the setup for what the book is really about. For the next 35 chapters... That's a true fact. And reflects on five chapters. Job sits around with four of his friends and, and reflects on what has happened to him. His four friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and a guy named Elihu. And I am, I am vastly over-summarizing here, so forgive me and bear with me. But for 35 chapters, the conversation essentially goes like this. Job's friends say... You must have done something wrong to bring this on yourself. What was it? What did you do? And for 35 chapters, Job defends and maintains his innocence. 
And so what we have here in this book is this exploration of what was the common wisdom of the day. Again, if we put Job right after Genesis 1 through 11, this is how people were answering these questions of suffering and injustice and why bad things happen and why there's this sort of endless cycle of violence and destruction. And what's really interesting to me is that a lot of the wisdom is very similar to the same things that we say today. You messed up. You made God mad. You brought this on yourself. And then there's also a lot of talk about there must be a reason for this. There's got to be an explanation for this. 35 chapters of them trying to figure out what the reason is. But here's one of the very unsettling conclusions of Job's story. There may not be a reason. Or at least there may not be a reason in the way that we think that there should be a reason. Many of us conclude when something bad happens, when we are suffering in some way, that there will be a redemptive outcome to this. I'm going to learn something from this. This is going to make me into a better, stronger version of myself. And you know what? That, that might happen, and that would be a great thing. That would be worth celebrating. However, the book of Job never offers this as a legitimate reason for our suffering. What it does offer is this. On the one hand, an affirmation that in this world we will suffer. And when we suffer, it may feel like God is inactive. But it also offers this affirmation that God is doing something. Whether we can comprehend it or not, whether we understand it or not, God is doing something. He is up to something. And that's really the whole explanation that Job offers us. God finally gets to speak at the end of the story. Here's what he has to say. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. God can be sarcastic from time to time. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And it's kind of harsh. But part of what the message of Job is, is this. God is God, and we are not. God is God and we are not. And therefore, what he deems right, that choice is righteous because he is God. Now, that's kind of a circular logic. But again, God's point here is not that everything is going to make sense to us. It's not that there's a reason for everything, but that he is the beginning and the end of the conversation because he is God. He laid the foundation of the earth. He marked its dimensions. He created the boundaries and the lines within which we, his created beings, get to live. Now, the other 
reality that Job points us to and that scripture as a whole provides for us is this truth that God himself suffers. God is not immune to suffering. Here we see some parallels between Job's story and Jesus' story. Both Job and Jesus caught up in the struggle between good and evil. Both were righteous and yet still suffered and were victims of injustice. Both of their stories end well. Job has this uh, amazing resurrection story, this sort of part two of his life. And Jesus, of course, has a literal resurrection, comes back from the dead. But there are two key differences between Job and Jesus. One of them is this. Job did not volunteer for his ordeal. Jesus did. Jesus willingly gave himself up, allowed himself to be subject to suffering. And the other difference is that, well, Job gets a new start. He doesn't actually die. Jesus dies. Again, for God, suffering is not a philosophical question. It's not this sort of esoteric idea to sit around the campfire pontificating about. God has not been passive about suffering. Yes, he allows it. And yes, it can feel like he is absent or inactive. But God has definitively made a statement about the groaning of creation. And that statement is his son, Jesus hanging on a cross. God's statement that I am not immune from suffering. I will suffer and I will die. And through that death, I will make it possible for you to live. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. You see, the Job story is actually a strong affirmation of humanity. Jesus on a cross fully God, fully human, is a statement that we are worth saving. We are worth Jesus' life. And the truth is that through his wounds, we are healed. There's probably a lot more that we could say about all of this, but I just want to highlight, I think, three really important truths for us that come out of the Job story, the Job paradox. The first is this, all of our emotions are valid and expressible to God. Job is a a model for us in many ways of what a spiritually mature emotional life looks like, a spiritually mature worship. He's both brutally honest about his pain and at the same time totally open to whatever God is doing, even if he has no understanding of what it is. Brutally honest about his pain, totally open to what God might be doing. Job says many things like this. As surely as God lives, God who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter. That's pretty direct confrontational language. 
names his injustice, names the suffering, but then he also says stuff like this. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. And while God does say, who are you to question me? At the same time, God never once reprimands Job for feeling pain, for lamenting his loss. He's never ordered to to mute or stuff his emotions. And what's really interesting is for Job, that freedom leads to deeper worship. At the end of the book, he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. At the end of the book, Job realizes God is God and I am not. And it leads him to worship. This leads to a second truth. And I think this is the hardest one, at least for me personally. And that's trust the silence. God's inactivity, at least from our perspective, does not mean that he's not up to something. And yet, the invitation of this paradox is to trust those moments of silence when it feels like God is inactive. And again, this is, this is the hardest one for me. Amy and I have really struggled with this in, in regards especially to some of the suffering that we've seen in the lives of people in our family. In particular, Amy's brother was in a, a car accident 13 years ago and suffered a very severe traumatic brain injury. He went through a season of recovery, seemed like was making really good progress, and then in the last five years or so has been in significant decline, and it raises a lot of questions for us. Personally, it really tests my patience and my theology. What if Joseph doesn't get better? What does that mean? Shouldn't there be a better, happier ending to this story? Why this recovery and then this decline? God, what are you doing? And the truth is we have no idea what God is doing, what kind of story he is writing. We weren't there when God laid the foundations of the earth. What we do know and the truth that we cling to is that God, through Jesus, has acted. And we do know that God will one day heal Joseph completely. But the question for us is, what about now? Why not now? The Job paradox does not answer that question for us, but it does invite us to trust the silence as difficult as it may be. One of the most challenging passages of Scripture for me, Hebrews 11, verse 39, talking about some of the great heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. That thing that you want, what if you never get it? Would you still believe? What does it look like for you to trust the silence? Now, one final truth, and I don't mean this to be, to be glib or to be funny, but it's this. Don't be Job's friends. 
And Christians in particular, I think, really struggle with this. We love to rush into situations where people are in pain with so many words. And again, the book itself is an illustration of this. 35 of the 42 chapters are Job's friends talking about what he's going through, trying to give him an explanation for what is happening. And it's sort of like within just the structure of the book itself, God is saying over and over and over again, don't be like this. Leave space for the silence. Leave space for the pain and just be with people. Mourn with those who mourn. Suffer with those who suffer. And here's the really crazy thing. We are most like Jesus when we join people in their suffering. We're most like Jesus when we enter into suffering with others because that is what he has done for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus got involved in our pain and our suffering and our mess to pull us out of it. So our job is to just be with people, is to suffer with those who suffer, not to explain it away or give an answer. Now, given the, the weightiness of this paradox, we wanted to allow some space this morning for you to process. So we're going to close our gathering this morning with an extended time of worship. And during this time, I would invite you to do uh, three things. You don't have to do all of these things, but these are available for you as we uh, close our time together. One of those is just to continue meditating on these truths. Are there emotions that you need to express to God? Is there an area of suffering in your life where you need to trust the silence? And then where is God asking you to be with someone in their suffering? Okay, so spend some time with those questions. If you would like to pray with someone, our elders and, and elder wives are going to be available for prayer. A couple of us will be over here and a couple over here if you would like to pray with someone about anything that's come up for you this morning. And then finally, during this time, we're going to take communion together. We do this every Sunday, but on this Sunday in particular, communion is this strong, tangible reminder that God is not immune to our suffering, that he entered it. He's felt it. He's suffered with us. And we know this to be true because of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. And so we eat to remember what he has done for us. And we eat to remember the hope that we have because God has suffered on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Job paradox, the Job story draws us into some really deep questions. And these are questions that are not intellectual questions. These are uh, emotional questions that for many of us strike a very raw nerve. God, we, we want, we desperately want for you to make everything right again. And yet there are times when it seems like you're, you're not acting, you're not moving in that direction, 
or at least we don't see how you are making these things right, and we feel the pain of that. So, Father, this morning, I, I pray that we would move from wanting uh, and, and um, desiring a perfect answer to those questions just one step closer to trust. God, even if we don't see it, even if we don't get the answer that we want, may we be the kind of people that believe and trust that you are doing something. God, if there's things that we need to vent, if there's emotions that we need to let out, I, I pray that now would be a great time and space to do that. If there's uh, something in our life that we're struggling with, God, and we don't see you at work, help us to trust the silence. And then, God, help us to enter into other people's suffering in a way that is life-giving and redemptive and points people back to the truth that you have suffered on our behalf, that we might have relationship with you, that we might have life, that you pull us out of our suffering, especially the suffering that is caused by our rebellion. You make it possible for us to be in relationship with you and to walk through whatever difficulties in life with you together. God, I pray for this time now as we meditate on this, reflect on these truths, would you speak to us? Would you encourage our hearts? Would you begin the process of healing for those who need healing? And again, would you help us to just draw even one step closer to you this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.